Manu, the energetic new governor who takes command of Lahore, views the Sikhs as a threat. Ahmad Shah Abdali, thwarted by the Mughals at Surind, returns to avenge his defeat. The Sikhs start growing in power as the Punjab stays turbulent. Before we begin the episode, we have a favor to ask of you. If you find this work compelling, please be sure to rate it and write a short review. That will definitely help us get the podcast to a wider audience. I also wanted to share some exciting news with you. If you've enjoyed the rich musical offerings in our episodes, check out our new endeavor, the Gourmet Sangeet Podcast. In Ode to Six Sacred Music, the podcast is a curated introduction to some of the finest live recordings in the genre. Mir Manu had arrived in Lahore to take up his new command. He had just lost his father, Wazir Kamaruddin, but he had played an important role in the victory against Ahmed Shah Abdali at Sarand, and he had been rewarded with the governorship of Lahore, a highly prestigious position with great visibility at the Mughal court. He had, however, not been given much support. He only had 2,000 horsemen and a small personal entourage. He immediately started recruiting mostly Central Asian Turks and Persians, many of whom were seeking employment after the fall of Nadir Shah. His first task was to undo the administrative changes put in place by Ahmad Shah Abdali he appointed Koramal as his divan and arrested Jale Khan of Kasur, who had been appointed governor by Ahmad Shah Abdali, as well as his divan, Lakhpat Rai, the great enemy of the Sikhs. Divan Koramal, a Hindu, in sharp contrast to Lakhpat Rai, was a great friend of the Sikhs. In the words of Ratan Singh Pangu, Tab Lahore aaye Manu Vadeo, ਤਬ कह रहे लाहौरी लोक तू नह टलेओ उस दिन मारे तै ये कीने बहुत अखारे ऐसी ऐसी और सुनाई उन सिंगण सेओ जैसी कमाई कल्लू कारो जैस करायो बैठे गरीब सिख घरों मरवायो गुर को नाम ते कहन हटायो पोथी ग्रंथ ते खूड बायो ये के दीनी मुश्कन चढ़ाए सेहत खाने में दयो गिराए सिखन ते तिस सिर हगायो और लुकन ते सीस मुतायो 
ऐसी कौड़ा मल करी लखू बाब बनाए जैसी कीनी थी उन्हें सो उन पाई सजाए रतन सिंह जिम सुनी तिम ये दई लिखाए अठारह सै पचहत्तरवे साल बिक्रमी राय Meer Manu in Lahore arrived Lakhpat Rai he did arrest rupees 3 million was the fine he could just pay two at best Goda Mal he was a sick a million he offered to pay Lakhpat had done terrible things it was time for him to pay from the comfort of their homes innocent six you took away pleaded citizens of Lahore kill them on most holy day you did not yourself restrain goda mal upbraided him recounted all of his misdeeds towards the six inhuman grim a holocaust you brought about murdered six in their own homes stopped the practice of their faith drowned in wells their sacred tombs lakhpatrai was put in chains thrown in a cesspit it is said on him six did defecate urinated on his head at the hands of goda mal such was lakhpat's piteous state as he had sowed he now did reap degradation was his fate as was heard by ratan singh the tale it has been told 1805 bikrami the story did unfold a few notes since ratan singh pangu mostly relied on the oral tradition and recounted history as it had been passed down in his family the historical veracity of his revenge fantasy is difficult to establish it does however make for very colorful reading six of the period fondly referred to their great friend koramal as mithamal Gora is Punjabi for bitter and mitha is sweet. had been plunged into chaos again the emperor muhammad shah had been unwell and he was devastated when he heard of the death of his vizier kamaruddin khan who for all his indolence had been faithful to the monarch throughout his life on april 14 1748 during the 38th year of his reign muhammad shah rangile under whose watch the mughal empire had started to decline precipitously died word was sent to prince mirza sultan ahmed who was still in the punjab after defeating amacha abdali the drama that followed his death is described in the tarikh e ahmed shah by an unknown author a translation of which appears in the history of india as told by its own historians volume 
Those who were present at the time of his death were of the opinion that the wisest course to pursue would be to conceal from the public the news of the emperor's death till the arrival of the prince, and they accordingly enjoined strict silence on all those who were aware of the melancholy event that had happened. They then put the corpse into the wooden case of a European clock, which was very long, and for a shroud they procured a cloth from the master of the kitchen, pretending it was required for the dinner table. They buried him in the Hayat Baksh garden. Letters were then dispatched to the prince, informing him of the dangerous illness of the emperor, and urging him to come to Delhi with all possible speed, but they made no mention of the emperor's death. Saftar Jung, who had succeeded his uncle Sadat Khan as the Nawab of Awadh, sent his retainers bearing the golden royal umbrella and other emblems belonging to the late emperor and insisted that the prince adopt them immediately to preempt any confusion regarding succession. The prince ascended to the Mughal throne with the title Mujahuddin Ahmad Shah Ghazi, Saftar Jung assumed the position of wazir. The author of the Tariq Ahmad Shah writes that Ahmad Shah was not a man of great intellect. All the period of his youth to manhood had been spent in the harem and he had absolutely no experience whatsoever of the affairs of a kingdom or of the cares of government. Besides, he was surrounded by all kinds of youthful pleasures, which every person, seeing the turn of his mind, was anxious to display before him to entice his fancy. As a natural consequence, he gave himself up entirely to pastime and sports, and bestowed no thought on the weighty affairs of the kingdom." New figures emerged to wield power in Delhi. Jawad Khan, the chief eunuch in charge of Muhammad Shah's harem, 50 years old and illiterate, prevailed upon the young emperor to make him droga or chamberlain of the Divane Khas, the small audience hall reserved for meetings with the foremost nobles of the land. He also induced the emperor to give him a mansab or rank with command over 6,000 men, and adopted the lofty title Nawab Bahadur. Soon, he took control of all the affairs of the empire's governance. The emperor's mother was named Uddambai. Born a Hindu, she had been a dancing girl and had been one of Muhammad Shah's great favorites during his youth. She had, however, fallen out of favor, but after her son became emperor, she stepped into a role of prominence. It was rumored that she had a long-standing liaison with the Nawab Bahadur, and she shared power with him. She too adopted a lofty title, Nawab Qudsiya Begum, and was endowed with a mansab of 50,000. She started to shower money and gifts on the rest of the women in the late emperor's harem, as well as his younger children, who until then had received no maintenance at all. According to the author of the Tariq-e-Ahmad Shah, 
the queen and the nawab took the whole government into their hands, and the emperor had nothing left but the empty title. The other important figure, of course, was the vizier, Saftarjang of Awadh. He had one of the best trained and equipped armies, the core of which was a 6,000-strong contingent of Kizilbash soldiers who had formerly served Nadir Shah. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar, in his Fall of the Mughal Empire, Volume 1, paints a somewhat unflattering portrait of the vizier, by then the leading light of the Persian faction at court. The new imperial vizier, Saftar Jung, was the malignant star in the Delhi firmament. Devoid of far-sighted statesmanship, patriotism, or devotion to the throne, he was destined to ruin the Mughal Empire by pursuing a policy of blind self-aggrandizement. His one thought was how to ensure himself in the Delhi government by raising around him a ring of dependable clients at court and in the provinces. His primary agenda was to promote the Persian faction, and his biggest objective was to thwart the Turani faction and suppress the dynasty of Muhammad Amin Khan Chin Bahadur, which had held the position of vizier for 30 years after the fall of the Sayyid brothers. The Turani faction was not without influence. Despite the death of their patriarch, Kamruddin Khan, his son, Intizamuddala, regarded Saftarjang as a usurper who had stolen the office of vizier, which he felt belonged to him. The other important Turani figure was in the Deccan and not at court, for Nizam ul Mulk Asafja had died, and his son Nasir Jung had taken control of his father's province. The Hindustani faction, which consisted of nobles who had long standing ties to the empire and the Rajputs, wielded less power. They, however, hated Saftar Jung as much as the Turanis did. The shock of Nadir Shah's invasion had caused many small rebellions to break out, especially in provinces where the Mughal administrators were weak. Punjab had a history of Sikh rebellion already. In the Ganga Yamuna Dwab, Ali Muhammad, an Afghan, gathered an army and started plundering, establishing himself at the fort of Bangar and expanding his control all the way to the hills of the Kumau. The area under the control of the Afghans in the Ganga Yamuna Dwab was known as Rohilkhand. Further to the west, another Afghan chief, Muhammad Khan Bangash, had carved out a fiefdom for himself in the Farukhabad area. The Marathas, who had been given control of the Malwa, had been raiding as far east as Bengal, Bihar, and Urissa.
The jubilation of the Sikhs at Lakhpat Rai's humiliation did not last very long. Mir Manu was anxious to restore order in his province, but his lieutenants brought him disturbing news about the activities of the Sikhs, which he saw as a threat to peace. He learned about the Sikhs building the Ram Rani Fort in Amritsar and also received intelligence of a large gathering at Amritsar where the Sikh chief Jassa Singh Alubalia had been appointed the commander of the joint forces of the Sikhs known as the Dal Khalsa. Mir Manu had been informed that the next big gathering of the Sikhs in Amritsar would be in October during the festival of Diwali, and he started making preparations to strike. Sikhs came to Amritsar in droves for the Sarbat Khalsa. The mood was ebullient, and the celebrations were joyous, with thousands bathing in the sacred pool at Sri Harmandar Sahib. The Sikhs had their own network of spies, and when they got wind of Mir Manu's movements, about 500 warriors went to Ram Rani and the rest melted away into the forests, ready to return at a moment's notice to their brethren's relief. Mir Manu arrived in Amritsar where he met with Adina Beg, who had been summoned from the Dawab, and together they laid siege to Ram Rani. Khabar bhai jab Turk ko ladeo achanak aaye, Mir Manu ne bhejeo Dina Beg chadhaaye, Divan Koda Mal Sadika Nal Aziz Khan Te Subedar Raje Pahari Kai Chadhae Top Khano Boho Satliae Turkan Tab Ran Gado Banaya Roni Dervaje San Muk Dakaya Tabe Khal Se Bat Bichari Turkan Pai Hamte Pari. When the Mughals got the news, hastened there ready to fight, sent Mir Manu Adina Beg at the head of the Mughal plight, Koramal and Sadik Beg and Aziz Khan in command. With him came many hill kings, ready to start a cannonade grand. A mighty force the Mughals brought, gates of Ram Rani assailed, to the Khalsas clear as day, in numbers had the Mughals prevailed. Badly out numbered, the Sikhs were steadfast in the defense of their fort. The historian Kushvaktarai writes that the siege dragged on for four months and 206 were killed. The Sikhs were facing almost certain defeat and were on the cusp of sacrificing themselves in a desperate final charge when the tide turned. Adina Beg, in his employ, had a Sikh named Jassa Singh Toka, who led a band of a hundred Sikh and sixty Hindu warriors. Jassa Singh had been cast out of the Sikh Brotherhood and had entered Adina Beg's service, but during the siege, some of his followers had a change of heart and approached the defenders. Singh Tarkhan Jassa Singh Joe, Dino Singhan Chek Thosoe, So Ae Dina Beg Pe Raha, Singh Sankro Us Sang Aha, 
ते सिंह ये अब बचन उचारे हम भी मरे सो सिंगण नारे जे तुम हमको ले वो मेल आए रले हम तुमरी गैल सिंगन कहो अब आखिरी वेला जे तुम करो हमें संग मेला ये बदलो तुहे देवे गो गुरु बचन खाल से तुम हुए फुरू जस्सा सिंह को तिन कहो अब आप तुम करो संभाल अब हम अंदर वड़ेंगे मरे सो पंथे नाल जस्सा सिंह भी सिंगण कहो हम कब खाल से ओ टुटन चहो हम भी रलेंगे खालसे नाल खालसो टुटी गंडनवाल जस्सा सिंह ने लिखी अरदास बंद तीर कली सिंगण पास अब हमको तुम लेह मिलाए ओ आए धरे खालसे सरनाए सिंगण लिखियो अब मिलने वेला टुटे फुटे को होई गो मेला जस्सा सिंह बेग दीनंग कहो हमरो हिसाब अब कर दयो हिसाब कराए सो दो दिन पाए वड़ो जस्सा सिंह अंदर जाए जब जस्सा सिंह अंदर वड़ा तुरकन सिर जन पानी पड़ा a carpenter named jassa singh rejected by the khalsas all joined he had adina beg hundreds of followers at his call one of his men said these words we too wish to die with you take us back into the fold we will fight by your side too yes they said this is the time join us and be one with us the guru's favor you will find our prayers will save you thus to jassa singh his men said with you we shall no more stay we shall go inside the fort we will die the khalsa way jassa singh said i agree i will not my faith abjure i too will now go with you the khalsa will forgive i'm sure jassa singh entreaty wrote bore an arrow into the fort please admit me to your fold your favor i o khalsa court join us came then the reply once asunder will now meet adina jassa singh addressed from your service i retreat to adina said farewell jassa singh entered the fort dismayed adina his defection set back huge with great import the defection had demoralized the besieging force greatly and divan koramal always looking out for the six seized the opportunity he sought out mir mannu and suggested a different approach to dealing with the six his proposal was that the six be pacified with a land grant which would encourage them to settle down and live peacefully otherwise they would simply continue to live in the saddle and plunder for their subsistence adina beg was bitterly opposed to the idea a crafty man he had always tried to maintain some semblance of amity with the six but he feared that some day they might become too powerful and hence even more difficult to control after much deliberation mir manu made his decision yes on mir manu mudhar kore mal ko de ikhtiyar कहो मेल अब सिंगन संग जैस कैस कर लेहो निसंग कोड़े मल जंग डिग आए जंग हटाए सिंग अपनाए टके खर्च हित दोए लख दए निज संगी सब सिंग कर लए द्वादम नगर गुरु चक वारे लिख दीने बिन देर सुधारे 
ਅਰਧ ਤਲਕਾ ਪੱਟੀ ਕੇਰੋ ਦੇਣਾ ਕਰਿਓ ਫਤਿਹ ਕਰ ਫੇਰੋ ਖਰਚ ਜਗੀਰ ਪੰਥ ਤਬ ਲੈ ਕੇ ਭਇਓ ਮੋਦ ਸਭ ਗੁਰੂ ਮਨੇ ਕੇ ਔਨ ਹੀਅਰਿੰਗ ਦਿਸ ਮੀਰ ਮਨੂ ਮਿਊਜ਼ਡ ਕੋੜਾ ਮਲ ਹੀ ਦੈਨ ਸੈਡ ਵਿਦ ਦ ਸਿੰਗਸ ਗੋ ਐਂਡ ਮੇਕ ਪੀਸ ਟੂ ਐਮਟੀ ਦੇ ਸ਼ੁਡ ਬੀ ਲੈਡ ਕੋੜਾ ਮਲ ਕੇਮ ਟੂ ਦ ਫੋਰਟ ਫਾਈਟਿੰਗ ਸਟਾਪਡ ਐਂਡ ਸਿੰਗਸ ਇੰਬਰੇਸਡ ਫੋਰ ਐਕਸਪੈਂਸਸ ਗੇਵ ਥਮ ਕੈਸ਼ ਰੈਂਕਰ ਆਲ ਹੀ ਦਸ ਇਰੇਜ਼ਡ ਲੈਂਡਸ ਦੈਟ ਸਰਕਲਡ ਗੁਰੂ ਚੱਕ made over to them right away fully half of district patti revenues to the singhs would pay with the cash and land in hand joyous grateful was the band as an aside jassa singh toka whose defection turned the tide at ram roni would become known as jassa singh ramgadia and would go on to become one of the most prominent of the sikh chiefs the lifting of the siege of ram roni and the conferring of the land grant the six enjoyed a brief respite most of 1749 passed peacefully as the six prospered and added to their ranks mir manu continued to monitor them carefully he too recruited more soldiers and ordered new matchlocks to be cast a new battalion of gunners 900 in number was raised meanwhile the machinations of safdar jang continued unabated mir mannu part of the turani faction and grandson of mohammad amin khan chin bahadur was no friend of the vizirs and lahore was an important province nasir khan the former governor of kabul and peshawar who had been deposed by ahmed shah abdali during his invasion had returned to lahore after the battle of manupur mir manu had treated him with great courtesy and helped him win back sialkot parsur gujarat and aurangabad all of which had been parts of his former fiefdom he had also promised to help nasir khan recover kabul from the afghans Safdar Jung sent secret messages to Nasir Khan urging him to take Lahore from Mir Mannu and promising that once the deed was done he would officially be appointed governor of Lahore in May 1749 
Safdarjung sent Shahnawaz Khan, the second son of Zakaria Khan, to govern Multan. Even though Shahnawaz Khan was of Turani blood and related to Mir Manu, he had fully defected to Safdarjung, even embracing his Shia faith. The vizier incited Shahnawaz Khan and encouraged him to attack Mir Manu and take Lahore, which he told him should have been his by rights. Shahnawaz Khan left Delhi for Multan armed with a formal letter of appointment and money to raise an army, which he hastened to do upon arrival. Soon he had managed to put together a force 1,500 strong. In July 1749, Nasir Khan managed to engineer the defection of a thousand of Mir Manu's Uzbeg horsemen and in response, Mir Manu marched upon Sialkot. Nasir Khan was defeated and had to flee back to Delhi in disgrace. Shahnawaz Khan then wrote to Mir Manu asking for permission to visit his father's tomb in Lahore. Seen through the ploy, Mir Manu decided to attack preemptively. He ordered Divan Koramal to lead a campaign against Multan. Koramal, whose spies had told him of the elaborate preparations Shanavas had made and the large force that he had mustered, decided to approach the Sikhs for help. When Divan Koramal came to Amritsar to petition them, the Dal Khalsa decided that they would help him. An army of 10,000 Sikh warriors under the command of Jassa Singh Aluwalia got ready to march on Multan. Each cavalryman was to be paid a rupee per day. Each foot soldier would receive half a rupee and a commander five rupees. Two months of the salary would be paid in advance and the Sikhs would be given the right to plunder. Jassa Singh Ram Gadiya was placed in command of Ram Rani which had a new name, Ramgarh, and the Khalsa army left Amritsar for Multan. In October 1749, the combined forces of Divan Koramal and Jassa Singh Aluwalia met the army of Shanavas Khan near the village of Durana Langana. Shanavas Khan was slain by a Sikh named Bhim Singh and his army was defeated. Divan Koramal returned to Lahore in triumph and was heaped with honors by Mir Manu. He was appointed governor of Multan and awarded the title Maharaja Bahadur. One of his first acts after returning from the campaign was to visit the Sri Harmandar Sahib and make a large offering for its maintenance. Mir Manu had not yet established himself completely as the governor of Lahore. He had foiled Vizier Safdarjung's plots against him, but at a great cost. He had also suffered a significant loss of revenue as his attention had been diverted by Nasir Khan and Shanavaz Khan. Unbeknownst to him, a far bigger danger was approaching. Smarting from his defeat at Manupur and eager to plunder the wealth of the Mughal Empire and make a name for himself, Ahmed Shah Abdali had launched his second invasion. By mid-December, Ahmed Shah Abdali had crossed the Indus and was steadily making his way east 
looting and plundering, Mir Manu gathered his forces and resolutely advanced to meet the invader. Abdali had crossed the Chenab, and Mir Manu set up camp at Sodra. For several weeks, there were inconclusive skirmishes between small bands sent by both sides as scouts. Mir Manu, recognizing that his army was no match for Abdali's, sent a holy man named Maulvi Abdullah to negotiate. Abdali, who claimed the legacy of Nadir Shah, demanded the four districts of Sialkot, Parsur, Gujarat, and Aurangabad, which had been ceded by Muhammad Shah to Nadir Shah. An annual revenue of almost one and a half million rupees was agreed upon, and Ahmad Shah Abdali returned to Kabul and Mir Manu to Lahore. The writer of the Tariqe Ahmad Shah notes that the news of Ahmad Shah Abdali's attack speedily reached the ears of the emperor and the vizier, but no one thought of sending troops to assist Muinul Mulk. On the contrary, the vizier was not a little pleased to hear of his embarrassment. He also suggests that Sialkot, Pursur, Gujarat, and Aurangabad, collectively known as the Four Mehals, were ceded according to the advice and instructions of the emperor himself. While Mir Manu was dealing with the Afghan threat, the Sikhs, who had largely been living peacefully around their new Jagir or land grant, were starting to get restive and saw an opportunity. Bands of Sikhs started pillaging and plundering again. The historian Kushwat Rai writes about a daring raid that Nawab Kapoor Singh launched on Lahore. The incident is described in some detail in Baba Prem Singh's Jeevan Britant Nawab Kapoor Singh. Nawab Kapoor Singh, deciding that he would take the rulers of Lahore down a peg or two, came up with a daring plan. He led his band of warriors to the outskirts of Lahore and, leaving most of them encamped at the Shalimar Gardens, entered the city with just 20 horsemen. His little contingent fiercely fell upon any Mughal soldiers who tried to impede them and quickly dispatched them. Like a whirlwind, the Sikh cavalry swept through the bazaars of Lahore and came to a halt at the office of the Kotwal or chief constable of Lahore. The first thing that the Sikhs did was to raid the armory and load their horses with weapons of their choice. He deployed ten horsemen on either side to stand guard and seated himself on the Kotwal's official seat, which was situated on a high platform. Then he summoned the Kotwal and demanded that he bring him the case histories and charge sheets of all the prisoners being held at the prison attached to the complex. After reviewing the records of all 30 inmates, he commanded that they be immediately released. The hapless Kotwal was then asked to bring the contents of his treasury, mostly items that had been confiscated by his constables in Lahore. The accumulated treasure, like the weapons, was turned over to the 26 in the raiding party. Nawab Kapoor Singh then addressed the Kotwal. Go tell your master that Nawab Kapoor Singh, Kotwal of the most powerful emperor in the world, was here 
And under his authority, he freed all the captives of the Kotwali of Lahore. Furthermore, inform him that I am taking whatever I need from your armory and your treasure house. The irate Kotwal quickly sent word to the imperial forces asking for reinforcements, and Izzat Khan, Mir Manu's deputy, hastened to the Kotwali with a detachment of soldiers to deal with the audacious six. By then, by then, Nawab Kapoor Singh had risen from the seat, mounted his horse, and in the twinkling of an eye, the six were gone, laughing as they triumphantly carried their booty to their camp in the Dwab. Ek divas is nawab ke man mein aayi mauj aur singh pe rakh kyo sala mar akaj chadyo nawab keh khelan sakar saath kul liye 20 aswar jaavat jaavat ja pujyo lahor aur ja baithe chabutre thor pehar ek teh hukm chalaye te khabar puni turk kile jo aaye कपूर सिंह मुड़ पीछे धयो नगारन डगे लाए मुड़ वयो वन डे नवाब कपूर सिंह मेड अ प्लान मोस्ट बोल्ड मोस्ट ऑफ हिज वैलियंट बैंड ऑफ सिक्स एस्ट शालिमार टू होल्ड फ्रॉम देयर ऑन अ हंट ही वेंट विद हिम वेंट हॉर्समैन अ स्कोर स्टॉर्म द सिटी एंड सीट कैप्चर्ड हेड कांस्टेबल ऑफ लाहौर office for 3 hours held from the fort there came a force rode kapoor singh like the wind to the sound of drums galore when mir manu returned from sodra he discovered that the suburbs of lahore had been pillaged by the sikhs their jagir was withdrawn and the sikhs felt the full force of mir manu's wrath Thomas Beg Khan Bahadur was a Mughal nobleman who wrote the Thomas Nama under the pen name Thomas Maskeen or Thomas the Humble. Born a Turk, he was enslaved by Uzbeks serving under Nadir Shah, who migrated to Lahore and entered the service of Mir Manu. The boy who had been given the name Zakir was offered by his master to Mir Manu as a personal slave. whose service he entered as a member of Mir Manu's household he had a ringside view of the events in Punjab during the invasions of Amitsha Abdali Thomas Maskeen's memoirs are interesting for another reason in Sikh folklore Mir Manu is cast as a unidimensional villain 
heaping cruelties on six in his attempt to destroy them, a very different side of Mir Manu's personality emerges from the Tamasnama. After he was presented to Mir Manu at his mansion, the lad, along with several other boys drawn from the ranks of the Uzbeks, was taken into service. His name was changed to Taimur by his master, and tutors were hired to educate the boys. Sixteen of them would accompany Mir Mannu when he visited his soldiers at their camps, and each was given a daily allowance of one rupee. The boys, in addition to being taught the Quran, were also schooled in court etiquette. Mir Mannu took a personal interest in the boy, and encouraged him to learn how to paint and draw. The next stage was military training as the boys were being groomed to become future officers and administrators. Maskeen's account of his early life is filled with allusions to Mir Manu's kindness. The uprising of the Sikhs, which hampered trade and revenue collection all over the Lahore province, continued, much to the exasperation of Mir Manu, but then a now familiar threat reared its head again. Mir Manu got word in September 1751 that Amit Abdali had left Kandahar, once again at the head of an army 50,000 strong that included Afghans, Uzbeks, Kizilbash, and other adventurers. This account of Emacha Abdali's third invasion draws heavily upon Tahmas Maskeen's writings. This time, Mir Manu had some time to prepare. By the middle of November, Abdali's general Jahan Khan crossed the Indus with an advance force with his master following closely behind. The annual tribute that had been agreed to after Abdali's second invasion had not been paid at all, and Mir Manu received a letter from Abdali with a demand of two and a half million rupees. Mir Manu replied that for a good portion of the time, the four mehels that had been conceded to Abdali had been governed by Nasir Khan, who had fled with the revenues that he had collected. Mir Manu offered Ahmed Shah a little under a million rupees, which he was very glad to accept. However, declaring that he was owed more, he kept on marching east. While he was negotiating with Abdali, Mir Manu was mustering his forces, Divan Koramal was summoned from Multan and Adina Beg from the Dawab. He put together a huge force, including 20,000 Sikhs, who had been persuaded to join the enterprise against the foreign invader by their old friend Divan Koramal. Gijalan ko tum deh hatai, dayo kharch ko sikka daru, tako den ko kiyo tiyaru, meer mannu te dayo likhaye, so bhi ghaleo singan ke paaye, is ganeem ko mod ke, fir ham tum karhe gal, aki jo ham te rahe, leo mulk tum mal. Koramal wrote to the Singhs, Sikhs and Hindus, family one, much in common do we have. Together let's make the Afghans run. Arms and powder you will get. 
cash do I promise to you? On paper will this manu put missive sent without ado? Let's get rid of this scourge first. Manu said, then we will talk. Even though you do rebel, I'll give you land I will not balk. Kushwant Singh, in his History of the Sikhs, Volume 1, writes that the Sikh contingent made up the bulk of the force that Mir Manu had gathered. Mir Manu crossed the Ravi at the head of his army to confront Jahan Khan, but Abdali made a surprise move and skirting Mir Manu's army approached Lahore from the northeast and started plundering the suburbs. Mir Manu quickly turned around and a battle was fought at Fazbagh, after which the Afghans retreated to the Shalimar Gardens and Mir Manu set up camp closer to the city. Abdali ravaged the countryside to a distance of a hundred miles, getting easy access to supplies and fodder. Mir Manu's besieged forces, on the other hand, started running low on food. The standoff continued for four months. Mir Manu wanted to charge the Afghans, but both Adina Beg and Divan Koramal counseled patience. The conditions in the camp were becoming difficult, and Divan Koramal suggested that it be moved. On March 5th, Abdali got wind of the movement and attacked when Mir Manu marched out of his camp. A fierce battle was fought with Adina Beg in the vanguard, Mir Manu in the middle and Divan Koramal in the rear. Mir Manu's army was defeated and several commanders, including Divan Koramal, were killed. The defeated governor of Lahore retreated to the city and started fortifying it as well as he could. The Sikh contingent did not make a material contribution to the defense of Lahore. Long feared and disliked by the citizens of the city, they ran into unexpected problems. Ratan Singh Pangu writes that a factional fight broke out within the ranks of the Sikhs when Hari Singh Pangi, one of the Sikh chiefs, shot dead Kushal Singh Ramgadiya, the brother of Jasa Singh Ramgadiya. Fearing retribution, which was surely coming, the Bhangis took their 10,000-strong contingent and vanished. More trouble followed. Or dera ja payo lahore, shala mar baag ke dhore, Sing Lahori Dravaje Ae, Deke Kasai Gaufrae, So Singerne Dine Mar, Bai Dravajan Me Hartar, Sher Lahore Fir Sing Foj Mari, Ihavi Singer Bai Huari, Camp the Khalsa at Lahore by the Garden Shalimar now, Go they to the city next. Being slaughtered, see a cow. Butchers sings they put to death. Roused shopkeepers near and far. Try they to attack the sings. Set upon the warriors are. Ratan Singh Pangu writes that a small contingent of Sikhs engaged the Afghans in a skirmish in which his own father, then a young lad, was involved and in which the mighty Sikh hero Sukha Singh, the slayer of Masarangar, was killed. When the raiding party tried to seek shelter in Lahore, they were fired upon by the city's residents and defenders. Sukha Singh Uha Muyo, 
ਫੌਜ ਮੁੜੀ ਸੋ ਤਰਫ ਲਾਹੌਰ ਅੱਗੇ ਛਲਕ ਲਾਹੌਰੀਆਂ ਦਈ ਸਿੰਘਣ ਪਰ ਜੋਰ ਜਬ ਦੋਏ ਵਲ ਸਿੰਘਣ ਭਈ ਮਾਰੀ ਤਬ ਖਾਲਸੇ ਕੋ ਭਈ ਖੁਆਰੀ ਤਬ ਖਾਲਸੋ ਆਏ ਡੇਰੇ ਅੜਾ ਰਾਤ ਪੜੀ ਸਿੰਘ ਸਭਨ ਗਨ ਕਿਓ ਡੇਰੋ ਮਾਝੇ ਵਲ ਤੁਰਕ ਦੋ ਬੇਈਮਾਨ ਹੈ ਲੁੱਟ ਖਾਏ ਦੋਵਾਨ ਰਲ ਸੁਖਾ ਸਿੰਘ ਹੀ ਨਾਉ ਲਾਈਸ ਡੈਡ ਖਾਲਸਾਸ ਨਾਉ ਲਾਹੌਰ ਵਰਡਸ ਟਰਨ ਐਸ ਦੇ ਡੂ ਦ ਸਿਟੀ ਅਪਰੋਚ ਹੇਲਸ ਆਫ ਬੁਲੇਟਸ ਡੂ ਦੇ ਅਰਨ ਸੈਟ ਅਪਨ ਔਨ ਬੋਥ ਫਰੰਟਸ ਨਾਉ ਬੋਥ ਸਾਈਡਸ ਵਿਦ ਥੈਮ ਸੀਕ ਟੂ ਫਾਈਟ ਟੂ ਦ ਕੈਂਪ ਦੇ ਥੈਨ ਪ੍ਰੋਸੀਡ ਵਾਚਫੁਲੀ ਦੇ ਸਪੈਂਡ ਦ ਨਾਈਟ and when strikes the darkest hour to maja the six retreat knaves are mughals and afghans pillage plunder both deplete his divan dead his sick forces gone mir manu rallied his remaining troops and readied his artillery to attack the afghans when a letter arrived from ahmed shah abdali the contents of the letter are documented in the tahmasnama It has now been 4 months. Muslims from both sides are being killed and yet you have decided to strengthen your defenses and fight. This will only result in the death of more Muslims and you will be disgraced before Allah and the Prophet. How can you justify this? Send me your trusted emissaries and let us negotiate without conferring with anyone. Mir Manu mounted his horse and rode out to Abdali's camp all alone. He was greeted with respect and taken by Jahan Khan and the vizier Shah Wali Khan to Ahmad Shah's tent. Ahmad Shah Abdali asked the governor, "If you had defeated me, what would you have done to me?" Mir Manu unflinchingly replied, "I would have cut off your head and sent it to my emperor." Asked then Ahmad Shah Abdali, How then should I treat you? If you are a merchant, buy me. If you are a butcher, kill me. But if you are a king, pardon me," said Mir Manu calmly. Much pleased, Ahmad Shah Abdali embraced Mir Manu and gave him his own turban, addressing him as a son. Peace, however, came at a price. Ahmad Shah Abdali extracted a ransom of 3 million rupees and demanded that Lahore and Multan be ceded to him. Mir Manu agreed and Abdali sent an envoy Kalandar Beg to Delhi to get the emperor to ratify the agreement. Saftar Jung was away dealing with a rebellion and the rest of the nobles terrified at the prospect of facing the Afghans in battle advised the emperor to sign the treaty thus in april 1752 punjab passed from mughal control into afghan hands mir manu was confirmed as the governor of lahore by his new overlord ahmed shah abdali
death of Divan Koramal robbed the Punjab of an important moderating influence that could have helped keep the peace between Mir Bannu and the Sikhs. Sikh warriors fanned out all over the province and by the time Mir Manu saw Ahmad Shah Abdali off, he discovered that his realm was practically in the hands of the Sikhs. The repressive measures that the Sikhs had been so familiar with during the days of Zakaria Khan came back with a vengeance. Thomas Maskeen writes, Muinul Mulk himself marched out of Delhi and encamped near village Tikapur on the banks of the Ravi. He sent out Mughal troops under Khaja Mirza in every direction to suppress the Sikhs, who would ride out 20 to 30 coasts. Whenever he got a clue to the whereabouts of the Sikhs, he suddenly fell upon them and slew them. The persons who brought Sikhs alive or their heads or their horses received prizes. Every Mughal who had lost his own horse in battle was provided a better one at the expense of the government. At times, Adina Beg sent 40 or so Sikh captives from the Dawab district. They were killed with the strokes of wooden hammers. Mir Manu had seen the havoc that Ahmad Shah Abdali's matchlock men had wreaked upon the Rajput cavalry at Manupur. The Sikhs, too, fought on horseback, and to counter them, Mir Manu had 990 jazails or matchlocks made and raised a dedicated detachment of marksmen. As he hunted down the Sikhs, his matchlock men proved to be particularly effective against the Sikh cavalry. In his History of the Punjab, Sayyid Muhammad Latif writes, Mir Manu stationed detachments of troops in all parts infested by the Sikhs with stringent orders to shave off their heads and beards wherever they might be found. These measures, being rigorously enforced, inspired public confidence, checked the progress of the Sikh faith, and compelled the votaries of the Guru to conceal themselves in the mountains or jungles. Mir Manu issued strict orders to the hill rajas to seize the Sikhs and send them in irons to Lahore. These orders were obeyed, and hundreds of Sikhs were brought daily to Lahore and butchered at the Nahash Chok or Shaheed Ganj outside the Delhi Gate, in sight of multitudes of spectators. The young Manu became an irreconcilable foe of the Sikhs, and was determined to extirpate the nation. In March 1753, Adina Beg attacked Anandpur as the Sikhs had gathered in large numbers to celebrate the festival of Hola Mahalla. Many pilgrims were slaughtered, and in retaliation, the Sikh warriors plundered the Dawab, which was Adina Beg's fief. Mir Manu himself then took the field, attacked Ram Rani and raised it, putting the entire garrison of 900 to sword. Mir Manu's matchlock men roamed the countryside committing mayhem. Captives, including women and children, were taken to the slaughterhouse at Shaheed Ganj. Mir Manu looms large in Sikh folklore. 
even though his governorship of the Punjab was not very long, the ferocity of his repression and the resilience of the Sikhs in its face have been indelibly etched into the psyche of the Sikhs. This is captured very well by a popular doggerel of the time. Manu saadi datri asi manu de soe Jo jo manu vadda asi doon savave hoe Manu is our sickle and its fodder we The harder he hacks at us we multiply you see state of the imperial court was as chaotic as it had been for years. The eunuch Nawab Bahadur and the queen mother Uddambai still exercised control. The emperor, who was in his mid-twenties by then, started to make an effort to govern, but his lack of both talent and training were huge impediments. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar writes... In the last two or three years of his reign, he devoted himself to personally transacting business of state for a full six hours every morning without a respite for eating or drinking. He read the news reports from all four quarters, wrote replies on the dispatches of the subedars, heard petitions of complaint, inspected the muster rolls of the troops, and wrote full orders on the revenue or administrative cases, clearly summarizing the contents of these papers and giving the details of his decision. But his energy bore no fruit from his lack of practical knowledge, driving power, and persistence of effort. The self-willed youth of 25 would listen to nobody's counsel, but gave orders with the unreasoning obstinacy of an autocrat, and these were never translated into action. The actual administration did not show the least improvement for all this activity. Saftarjang was the vizier, and his protege Salabat Khan, the first bakshi or paymaster. The post of second bakshi was held by Intazamuddala, Mir Manu's brother. The provinces, in the meantime, were becoming increasingly independent. Saftarjang held Awadh and Allahabad. Salabat Khan was put in charge of Ajmer and Agra. The Deccan provinces were governed by Nasir Jung, the second son of the late Nizamul Mulk, 
and the Malwa was under the control of the Maratha Peshwa. The province of Bengal was governed by Ali Vardi Khan. The provinces had virtually stopped sending revenues, and the imperial treasury was empty, creating great embarrassment for the emperor. The soldiers of the imperial army were owed significant back pay, and they often rioted and attacked their paymasters and their commanders. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar writes that such a state could have been saved only by a vizier of Bismarckian capacity and dictatorial power, but Safdar Jung had neither. Indeed, his position was one of unusual difficulty. He was a foreign-born adventurer whose uncle had been the first of the family to enter the service of Delhi, and he could not establish aristocratic connections and local influence in the course of just one generation. Safdar Jung was considered an upstart by the old nobility, whose pedigree went back to the reign of Aurangzeb or even earlier. Safdar Jung was hugely unpopular, and the Khan Bahadur, as well as the entire Turani faction, was bitterly opposed to him. The other important member of the Turani faction at court was Ghaziuddin, the oldest son of the late Nizam ul Mulk, who was married to the sister of Mir Manu and Intizam Uddala. Ghaziuddin had another reason to resent Safdarjang deeply. The post of Mir Bakshi, the paymaster of the imperial army, had been held by his father, but Safdarjang had maneuvered his protege Salabat Khan into the role, making Ghaziuddin feel that he had been robbed. Intazam Dala was only the second Bakshi, and hence not very powerful, and his brother Mir Manu was fully occupied by his governorship of Lahore. He turned to his powerful cousin Nasir Jung, who ruled the Deccan provinces for help in deposing Safdar Jung. The Nawab Bahadur, the Nawab Bahadur, also very eager to get rid of Safdar Jung, poisoned the emperor's mind against his vizier and got him to agree that deposing him would be in the empire's interest. The emperor, under the inducement of the Nawab Bahadur, wrote a secret letter to Nasir Jung to march upon Delhi and remove Safdar Jung from office. Nasir Jung wrote to his brother Ghaziuddin that he was on his way to Delhi, ostensibly to pay his respects to the emperor, but with the real purpose of deposing Safdar Jung and installing Intazamu Dola as the new vizier. Meanwhile, in Delhi, there was an unsuccessful attempt on Safdar Jung's life, which he believed was Intazamu Dola's doing. Safdar Jung stopped attending court and moved out of the city of Delhi. Nasir Jung then wrote a disingenuous letter to the vizier, professing friendship, saying that he would soon travel to Delhi, emphasizing that all he wanted was the confirmation of his appointment to the governorship of Deccan and the title of Mir Bakshi, both of which he claimed by right. Safdar Jung was allied with the Marathas and through Hingane, the Maratha agent at court, he learned of Nasir Jung's real plans. He immediately wrote to the Peshwa as well as Malharji Holkar and promising them funds, asked them to stop Nasir Jung before he reached Delhi. 
The weak-willed Emperor Ahmad Shah, upon learning of Safdar Jung's plans, backpedaled furiously and wrote to Nasir Jung, confirming his appointment as the governor of the Deccan and asking him not to come to Delhi. His mother with him, he hurried to Safdar Jung's temporary quarters and assured him that his position was not in jeopardy and managed to placate him. The machinations continued. While Safdar Jung was busy battling the Afghans of Rohail Khand, the Khan Bahadur managed to get his protege Salabat Khan dismissed. To add insult to the injury, he got the emperor to confer the position of Mir Bakshi upon Ghaziuddin and appoint Intizam Uddala, the governor of Ajmer, a position which had been held by Salabat Khan. Other changes were in the offing. Nasir Jung was murdered, and the emperor conferred the Deccan upon his older brother Ghaziuddin, who was unable to travel more than six miles out of Delhi because his soldiers, who had not been paid for years, had mutinied and left his service. As Ahmad Shah Abdali was approaching Punjab during his third invasion, Safdar Jung was once again away from Delhi fighting the Rohilas. The emperor sent him urgent messages asking him to return to Delhi in case Abdali overran Lahore and appeared at the gates of the capital. Safdar Jung's Maratha allies were on their way back to Malwa, but he sent messengers after them upon learning of Abdali's new invasion. He offered the Peshwa a new treaty, under the terms of which the Peshwa would receive 5 million rupees, three of which would be his payment for beating Abdali back. One-fourth of the revenue of Punjab, Sindh, and the four Mahals would be ceded to the Marathas to meet their expenses. Ajmer and Agra would be added to the Malwa, which the Peshwa already controlled. The Peshwa was to govern and administer these provinces exactly like the other Mughal nobles did, and the Marathas would have to attend the imperial court and join the imperial army on future campaigns. The treaty was presented to the emperor by Malhar Holkar and Jayoji Sindhya, representing the Peshwa. The emperor signed off on all the terms. It was a bold plan. The Marathas had developed into a formidable power, and Safdar Jung wanted to deploy them on the northwestern frontier as a bulwark against Afghan invasions. Their agreeing to become vassals of the emperor would turn them from a thorn in the empire's side to valuable allies. Safdar Jung arrived in Delhi on April 25, 1753, at the head of a force of 50,000 Marathas, ready to press on to the Punjab and expel Ahmad Shah Abdali. The next day, Nawab Bahadur, barely able to hide his glee, visited Safdar Jung at the Maratha camp on the banks of the Yamuna and informed him that Punjab had already been ceded to Ahmad Shah Abdali by the emperor. The treaty that Safdar Jung had so painstakingly negotiated with the Marathas was not worth the paper it was written on. The Marathas were livid. They had arrived anticipating a large payment from the emperor, and now it had evaporated. They immediately started 
plundering the towns and villages west of the Yamuna, the wily Nawab Bahadur opened up negotiations with Malhar Holkar. Ghaziuddin's inability to take up his position in the Deccan had had severe consequences. He appointed the Peshwa his deputy governor and stayed at court because of his second position as Mir Bakshi. The Peshwa Balaji Baji Rao, knowing Ghaziuddin to be a weak man, was only too happy to gain control over the Deccan. However, Ghaziuddin's younger brothers, balking at the notion of ceding power to a Hindu chief, rebelled and with the Khan Bahadur's help, managed to secure the deputy governorship for Salabath Jung, Ghaziuddin's younger brother. To complicate matters further, a civil war had broken out among the Marathas. The Maratha king Sahau had died, and the former queen Tarabai had rebelled against the Peshwa. The Peshwa was under attack by his Maratha rivals, Damaji Gaikwad and Raguji Bhosle. To add to his troubles, Salabad Jung had invaded the Maratha territory and had managed to enter Pune, the Maratha stronghold, forcing the beleaguered Peshwa to sue for peace. Malhar Holkar, a staunch ally of the Peshwa, tried to benefit from the fiasco of the treaty with the empire. He declared that if Ghaziuddin was willing to go to the Deccan to take charge of his provinces, the 50,000 Marathas would leave Delhi with him. Further, they would be willing to accept 3 million rupees instead of the five the emperor owed them. And furthermore, they would collect the sum from Ghaziuddin, thus letting the imperial court completely off the hook. On May 4, 1743, the Marathas rode out of Delhi, much to the relief of the emperor and the citizens. The entire negotiation was handled by Nawab Bahadur, with no participation by Safdarjang. The vizier was completely humiliated. He had lost face before his Maratha allies as well as at court. The stage was thus set for a confrontation between Saftar Jung and Nawab Bahadur Jawad Khan. November 3rd, 1753, Mir Manu was outside Lahore, directing operations against the Sikhs. He sent his lieutenant Khaja Mirza Khan and others to chase down a band of Sikhs who had been seen in the area and decided to go hunting. 
after his hunt, he returned to a fort in the area that he had built, had lunch, and took a nap. Tamas Maskin was there and describes the events of the day in great detail. In the evening, he washed and prayed, after which he got dressed. By then, Khaja Mirza Khan had returned, bearing the heads of the six that he had been pursuing. Mir Manu rewarded the soldiers, and then, mounting his horse, rode out. He was accompanied by his son-in-law, Khaja Muin Khan, his bakshi, Tamas Maskin, and several others. After riding for a bit, the governor needed to ease himself. He asked the others to ride on and dismounted by a tree. The eunuchs attending to him raised a curtain around him for privacy. Much to their alarm, Mir Manu fainted. He was rushed back to the court and physicians were summoned. Mir Manu, who had lost his speech, died around midnight. Thomas Maskeen notes that his body from his face to his chest had turned blue, indicating that he had been poisoned. Both Ratan Singh Pangu and Gyani Gyan Singh present a different account of Mir Manu's death. Like Tahmas Maskeen, Gyani Gyan Singh writes that Mir Manu was outside Lahore, hunting Sikhs in the vicinity of a compound owned by the Hindu sage Danduram. According to the author, the Mughals were after a band of Sikh women who were hiding in Danduram's sugarcane fields with their young children. This excerpt is from the Panth Prakash of Gyani Gyan Singh. Sikhniyaan paach saath balak anek saath Danduram saad ke kumad mein chapaye hain Aise son jain khan pathayo meer mumman ko Jaye tin beech vah ukh darsaye hain Raji bhayo chit fire it ut baji par Pekh turkan tain bal chichlaye hain Lekhe panchavat mahant jaye pareo paaye Reheo chudaye dusht maaneo na kaaye hain Haha kar kar sab guru ka dhyan dhar Man hi mein rare guru kare nas inko Naam dev sadno prahlaad ji jyo rakhi laaj Taise ab hujiye sahayak sikhan ko Sudke pukar tab dinan ki kartar Dayo dar bajra ek aiso taahi chin ko It ut asv ko kudavat phirat huto खेत के चुफेरे मीर मोमन सो दिन को सिख वुमेन चिल्ड्रन इन टो हाइड इन अ फील्ड ऑफ शुगर केन मीर मनु डिड सोल्जर्स सेंड टू कैप्चर देम दे वर फेन ऑन हॉर्सेस दे प्रांस अराउंड फियरफुल चिल्ड्रन साब एंड वीप फॉर मर्सी बेग सेज दंदुराम मुगल्स इंपैसिव ब्रूटैलिटी डीप in the chaos the six are seen silently to the guru pray namdev and pralad saved you save us too in that very way the lord he did the prayer heed like a bolt of lightning struck helter skelter manu's horse ran with his rider amok divine providence and other words in response to the prayer of the beleaguered sick women caused mir manu's horse to bolt 
and resulted in the fall which then claimed his life. Dr. Gunda Singh, in his work, Amitya Durrani, father of modern Afghanistan, disputes Maskeen's version. He suggests that several other accounts confirm that Mir Manu died after falling from his horse when he was outside Lahore hunting six. No matter how it happened, the bane of the six was dead. Mir Manu was survived by his wife Sriya Begum, who was better known as Mughalani Begum, two daughters and an infant son whose name was Muhammad Amin Khan. The boy had been named after his illustrious great-grandfather, Muhammad Amin Khan Chin Bahadur, the patriarch of the Turanis. An extremely bold and intelligent woman, Mughalani Begum, upon hearing of her husband's death, promptly opened the Lahore treasury and ordered that all the soldiers be paid at once in order to maintain calm. Mir Manu's body was brought to Lahore and was interred in the tomb of Hazrat Ishan, close to the grave of the late Nawab Zakriya Khan. The news of Mir Manu's death reached Delhi on November 12th. The Emperor Ahmed Shah, displaying his usual sagacity, named his three-year-old son Mahmood the new governor of Punjab. The late Mir Manu's two-year-old son was named deputy governor. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar writes, The baby warden of the Northwestern Marches made his bow for his exalted office in the Divane Khas and was quite fittingly supplied with the deputy in the person of Muinul Mulk's son, Muhammad Amin Khan, then in the second year of his life, on whom a robe of investiture was sent from court with due gravity. Momin Khan was appointed the actual deputy governor to manage the day-to-day administration of Lahore. Of course, the real master of the province was Ahmed Shah Abdali, to whom the Mughals had ceded Lahore. Momin Khan judiciously sent an agent to Abdali's court informing him of the death of Mir Mannu. Abdali sent an edict in January 1754 confirming the two-year-old Muhammad Amin Khan as the governor of Lahore with Munim Khan as his deputy. Ghaziuddin had died in the Deccan under mysterious circumstances, and his son, Shahabuddin, a boy of 16, threw himself at Safdarjang's mercy. In tears, he told the vizier that he had been orphaned and he had nobody other than the vizier to turn to. Safdarjang was flattered, and he decided to take the son of his late rival under his wing. 
He even made his son and heir Shuja Uddala exchange turbans with the boy, allowed him into his harem, and let his wife appeared unveiled before him as if he had been her own son. He then persuaded the emperor to appoint the boy Mirbakshi. A 16-year-old boy now became the chief executive of the imperial Mughal army at a time when the empire was under threat from the Afghans, the Marathas, and a host of other rebels. The animosity between the emperor's two most powerful advisors had come to a head, and Saftarjung orchestrated the murder of the eunuch Nawab Bahadur. Saftarjung could have seized the opportunity to establish himself even more strongly, but instead he foolishly moved against the emperor and made him a virtual prisoner. Chamberlains and guards, handpicked by Saftarjung, controlled access to the emperor, and he was effectively barred from holding court. These actions completely alienated the entire nobility, and there was an outpouring of sympathy for the emperor. The emperor was clearly eager to end Saftarjung's grip on the empire, and rumors had started flying that the vizier would soon be replaced by Intazam Uddala. The emperor played out the charade of being the peacemaker and pretended to be a supporter of Saftarjung. The Maratha supporters of Saftarjung surrounded Intazam Uddala's home, and with great difficulty, the emperor prevailed upon both parties to move their troops out of Delhi. The nobles finally decided to act and ousted Saftarjung's underlings from the palace, ending the emperor's isolation and virtual incarceration. The emperor began to hold court again. Saftarjung's young and unlikely protege, Shahabuddin, who would become famous as Imad ul Mulk, showed his true colors. Saftarjung sent him to Intazam Uddala, his uncle, to negotiate a compromise. Imad ul Mulk, who was more intelligent and ruthless than the vizier could ever imagine, pretended to negotiate on his behalf but instead made a secret pact with his uncle to support him during the impending conflict. Armed with a grant of 20 million rupees from the queen mother Uddambai, who was bitterly opposed to Saftarjung, he rapidly started to build an army to oppose the vizier. He even managed to outbid the vizier and secure the loyalty of the Maratha envoy Bapu Rao Hingane. On May 13th, the emperor dismissed Saftarjung as vizier and his place appointed Intazam Uddala. The Tiranis were back in power and the son of the late vizier Kamaruddin Khan was finally able to claim his father's legacy. Imadul Mulk was invested with his grandfather's titles, Nizamul Mulk and Asafja. Saftarjung responded with an open rebellion. He produced a young eunuch owned by his son, named him Akbar Adil Shah, claimed that he was descended from Aurangzeb's son Kambaksh, and proclaimed him the new emperor. He appointed himself as vizier and Salabat Khan his Mir Bakshi and ready to take on the imperial forces. Matters came to a head in May 1754 when Salabat Khan and the other allies of the vizier 
poured into Delhi to support Safdarjang. The Jats, allies of the Vizier, plundered Delhi and Safdarjang was close to victory when Najib Khan Rohilla, his sworn enemy, arrived to defend the emperor. From that moment, the tide turned and after several months of skirmishing, Safdarjang's forces were pushed out of Delhi. On November 7, Safdarjang gave up his political ambitions and returned to Awadh. The young Imad ul-Mulk systematically went about destroying Safdarjang's power. He engineered the defection of 20,000 soldiers who had served Safdarjang and confiscated the houses of all the former vizier's supporters and relatives who lived in Delhi. It was not obvious at the time, but this was the true end of the Mughal Empire. In the words of Jadunath Sarkar, the final withdrawal of Safdarjang from the capital completed the stage at which the ablest and most experienced of the elder peers, in despair, gave up the task of reforming the administration and retired to distant provinces where they could at least achieve something, though in a smaller sphere. The practical independence of the provincial governors in Bengal, Avad, and the Deccan, and their scornful unconcern with the affairs of Delhi, coupled with the Maratha seizure of Gujarat and Malwa and the Afghan annexation of the Punjab, contracted the empire of India into a small area around Delhi and a few districts in the modern Uttar Pradesh where small men only fought and intrigued for small personal ends. the death of Mir Mannu, Mughalani Begum continued to rule Lahore in the name of her infant son. Bhikri Khan, one of Mir Mannu's commanders, chafed at the dominance of the Begum and tried to assert his authority. The Begum enticed one of his main lieutenants, Khaja Mirza, with the command of Amnabad, and while he was away, arrested Bhikri Khan and threw him in jail. The mild-mannered vizier was unable to stand up to his imperious sister-in-law and cancelled Bhikari Khan's appointment. By then, Amateur Abdali's edict confirming the infant Muhammad Amin Khan as governor had also been received. Dr. Ganda Singh writes, Thus equipped with the farman of his Afghan majesty, and crushing the opposition of Bhikri Khan and Intizam Uddala, Mughalani Begum became secure in the government of the Punjab as the regent of her infant son. But she soon sank into evil life, 
threw all modesty to the winds and became notorious for her loose morals, the actual authority passed into the hands of her eunuchs, who became her chief confidants and to all intents and purposes conducted the affairs of the state. Her foolish pranks and profligacies turned her best supporters and devoted servants against her. Punjab was not destined to be peaceful for long. Both Khaja Mirza of Aminabad and Adina Beg, still the deputy governor of the Dwab, had designs on the plum governorship of Lahore. The Sikhs, freed from the repression of Mir Manu, were ready to assert their independence again. Nawab Kapoor Singh had passed away several months earlier and Jassa Singh Aluwalia had already emerged as the most important Sikh chief. Right after Mir Manu's death, Sikhs attacked the butchers of Kasaipura in Lahore in response to a complaint from local Hindus aggravated by the slaughter of cows. Jassa Singh Aluwalia attacked the forts of Khwaspur and Fatehbad on the banks of the Beas close to Govindwal. Mughlani Begum ruled for about seven months. Thomas Maskeen writes that the eunuch Muharram Khan would hold the infant Muhammad Amin Khan in his lap while the courtiers paid obeisance with his mother behind a screen making all the decisions. However, the boy died suddenly in May 1754, while some accounts suggest he contracted smallpox, Tamas Maskeen says that he died of the same illness which had seized his father. The right side of his body had turned wholly blue. Maskeen speculates that the poisoning was the work of Pikri Khan. of the new Mir Bakshi, Imad ul-Mulk, was on a meteoric rise. The lad, whose father Ghaziuddin had been a pious Muslim, had raised his son with firmness and discipline. He had to spend his time studying the Quran with Muslim clerics, and he was prevented from attending the musical and dance performances that his peers enjoyed, during which wine flowed freely. He had mastered several languages, including Turkish, and was an accomplished calligrapher and poet. Unlike his father, who had been indolent and timid, he was fearless and a born leader. He was also devoid of a moral compass, extremely ambitious, cruel, and avaricious. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar describes the condition of the imperial court after the defeat of Saftar Jung. This hectic struggle had exhausted the wealth of the emperor, dried up the sources of revenue, and left his government overwhelmed with debt. In the course of it, he and his advisors had to concentrate all their thoughts and resources on the one task of defeating the enemy at the gate and had to neglect everything else. 
When this danger had at last rolled away, it was found that the work before them was nothing less than the building up of a new empire out of chaos. For such a task, neither Ahmed Shah nor his chancellor or army chief was gifted. To the utter bankruptcy of the treasury was added the mortal jealousy between the two highest ministers of state, which was unmasked in all its shamelessness by the exit of their common foe. The two highest ministers of state that Dr. Sarkar refers to were the vizier Intizam ud-Dawla and the Mir Bakshi Imad ul-Mulk. They should have been allies. Intizam ud-Dawla was the brother of Imad ul-Mulk's mother and the cousin of his late father Ghaziuddin. The Turani faction had triumphed, but internal dissension would lead to tragedy. The brash Imad ul-Mulk was contemptuous of his uncle, viewing him as a timid man who had chosen not to fight personally during the civil war, choosing instead to hide behind the city walls. The imperial court was racked by debt. On its payroll were 80,000 new men whose expenses amounted to 2.5 million rupees a month. They had not been paid for seven months. The veterans were owed wages for two years. The imperial staff and retainers had not been paid for 32 months. The powerful bankers of Bengal, the Jagat Sates, had also been bankrupted by the lean years preceding the civil war in Delhi and were thus unable to advance any money to the court. The desperate Imad ul-Mulk, who as Mir Bakshi was responsible for paying the disaffected soldiers, exhausted his considerable personal fortune and then looked to the emperor for relief. The imperial treasury was empty, and the helpless emperor insisted that Imad ul-Mulk use revenues from the provinces that he now controlled to pay the soldiers. Every time Imad ul-Mulk went to the emperor with ideas that might alleviate the empire's financial difficulties, he found himself thwarted by the vizier, whose counsel the emperor seemed to heed. Imad ul-Mulk allied himself strongly with the Marathas and with the support of his key lieutenant, Akibat Muhmud Khan, launched multiple campaigns to raise revenue. Matters came to a head when Imad ul-Mulk and the Maratha chief, Malara Holkar, were besieging the fortress of Kumbher, which would have potentially yielded great riches. Akibat Mahmud Khan was sent to Delhi to request the emperor to send heavy guns which would have helped the besiegers take Kumbher. The vizier Intizam ud-Dawla advised the emperor not to comply and concocted an elaborate scheme to defeat Imad ul-Mulk, having convinced the emperor that the Mir Bakshi was intent on rebellion. The emperor refused to give Akibat Khan the guns and his men started plundering Delhi. The imperial forces resisted and after a fierce fight, Akibat Khan was expelled. The vizier was fearful that if Imad ul-Mulk with his Maratha allies managed to subdue the Jats of Kumbher and take their wealth, nothing would prevent him from seizing the throne himself. 
Intizamuddala had craftily allowed Safdarjung to retain his territories even though they were supposed to be split between him and Imadul Mulk. He decided to create an alliance with the Jats, the Rajputs and Safdarjung to protect the emperor from Imadul Mulk and his Maratha allies. An important meeting was planned at Sikandrabad which was one of the territories directly owned by the emperor. Intazamuddala wanted to bring together the leaders of his new coalition and have them meet face to face with the emperor. Heavy artillery would be taken to Sikandrabad as well to dislodge the forces of Imadul Mulk and Akibad Khan who had tried to seize the emperor's personal territories. The emperor with his family the entire royal household and heavy artillery arrived in Sikandrabad and his army took control of the territory. When news arrived that Malhar Rao Holkar, having made peace with the Jats at Kumbher, was marching upon Delhi with 50,000 horsemen, the emperor panicked and abandoning his camp, mounted an elephant and fled back to Delhi. An advance party of 20,000 Marathas fell on the royal camp. Dr. Jadunath Sarkar writes that only the royal jewelry had been brought away in safety. All other kinds of property, both of the state and of the individuals, as well as the artillery, said to be over 500 pieces of all calibers, stores, treasure, tents, all fell into the enemy's hands. But the greatest loss was that of the honor of the imperial family. Queens and princesses were held in captivity by the rude spoilers from the south. Such a calamity had never before fallen on the house of Timur, and it lowered the head of everyone in Delhi. The matriarch of the Mughal Empire, Malika Ezamani, the wife of the late Muhammad Shah, was one of the noble women that were captured. Malhar Rao Holkar treated her with courtesy, but the other women were not so fortunate. The Marathas tore off the screens of their carriages and snatched their ornaments and money. Some escaped and others had to walk back to Delhi on foot. Even the brash Imadul Mulk, in no small part the author of the humiliation that had been heaped on Mughal royalty, was shamed. According to Jadunath Sarkar, on 28th May, he came to Malhar's camp, went to Malikai Zamani, presented five mohars to her, laid his turban on the ground before her, and wept professing shame and disgrace to himself at the hardships that had befallen her and pleading in excuse, I was helpless in this matter. The Deccanese would listen to none. I am like their servant. My face has been blackened. The former queen stoically laid the blame on fate. On June 1, 1754... Akibat Khan called upon the emperor, swore on the Quran that Imad ul-Mulk would always remain faithful to him, and got him to name Imad ul-Mulk the new vizier, deposing Intazam ud-Dala. 
On June 2nd, Imad ul-Mulk visited the emperor accompanied by Tatya Gangadhar, Holkar's diwan or minister, Akibat Khan and his brother Saifullah. He too swore fealty to the emperor on the Quran and was given the robes of the vizier, formalizing his appointment. Akibat Khan then took a guard of 50 soldiers and with the harem's superintendent as his guide, went to the palace where all the male descendants of past emperors were held in captivity. He went inside and emerged with Muhammad Azizuddin, the son of Jahandar Shah. The prince was brought before Imad ul-Mulk, who saluted him humbly and conveyed him to the Divane Aam, where he was seated on the throne and a royal umbrella was held over him. The reign of Alamgir, too, had begun. Muhammad Amin Khan, the infant governor of Lahore, had died. His deputy, Mir Momin Khan, was sent a robe of honor and confirmed in his role by the new emperor Alamgir II. He was, however, only a figurehead and real power still vested in Mughlani Begum. Her scandalous personal life prompted some of the courtiers to write to Khwaja Mirza, the governor of Aminabad, who marched upon Lahore and threw Mughlani Begum in prison, setting her adversary Bhikri Khan free. The wily Begum immediately sent Khaja Abdullah Khan, her maternal uncle and brother of the late Zakaria Khan, to petition Ahmad Shah Abdali. She also wrote to Imad ul-Mulk, the emperor's new vizier, who was her late husband's nephew, asking for help. The Begum had another connection with the vizier. According to Tahmas Maskeen, he was betrothed to her younger daughter, Umda Begum. The first response came from Ahmed Shah Abdali. He promptly sent Aman Khan, Jahan Khan's brother, with 10,000 troops and Khaja Abdullah Khan to restore order in Lahore. Khaja Mirza was thrown in prison and Mughlani Begum was released. She promptly arrested Bhikri Khan and had him beaten to death, blaming him both for the murder of her husband and her son. In 1755, Mughlani Begum was formally installed the governor of Lahore with Khaja Abdullah Khan as her deputy. By July of that year, Mughlani Begum and Khaja Abdullah Khan were at odds. 
the imperious Begum would constantly undermine her uncle, who, already chafing at having to serve his niece, rebelled. The Begum was deposed in an armed standoff with the blessing of Emicha Abdali's agent Hadi Khan and was sent to her mother's house, making Khaja Abdullah Khan the master of Lahore. The Begum sent another urgent letter to Imad ul-Mulk, informing him that her position had been usurped yet again. What she neglected to tell him was that three years earlier, Mir Manu had promised Umda Begum's hand to Emicha Abdali for his son, Prince Taimur. The perfidy of the Afghan agent convinced the Begum that she was better off aligning herself with the Mughals rather than the Afghans, and she asked for her prospective son-in-law for help. On 15th January 1756, Imadul Mulk, who coveted Punjab and wanted nothing more than to wrest Lahore back from the Afghans, left Delhi arriving in Sarand. Adina Beg advised the vizier to stop in Sarand and let him send an expedition to Lahore with 10,000 troops under the command of his lieutenant Sadiq Beg Khan. He asked the vizier to contribute a much smaller force and promised that he would deliver Lahore without bloodshed or loss of life. Imadul Mulk agreed and Adina Beg marched into Lahore. Khaja Abdullah Khan, seeing the writing on the wall, quietly fled to Jammu and Mughlani Begum was in charge yet again with Sadiq Beg Khan as her deputy. Delighted at the outcome of her machinations and eager to get her daughter married to the vizier, Mughlani Begum started putting together a dowry for her daughter and preparing for the upcoming wedding. In the meantime, the puritanical Imadul Mulk had been told several tales of the Begum's profligate ways. Greatly embarrassed by the behavior of his aunt and future mother-in-law, the vizier decided that he could not let her live unsupervised in Lahore. He sent several lieutenants, including his favorite, Sayyid Jamiluddin Khan, and tasked Adina Beg with bringing her to Sarand, which he was only too happy to facilitate. On March 28, 1756, Mughlani Begum was brought to Imadul Mulk's camp. Momun Khan was again appointed governor of Lahore, with Sayyid Jamiluddin Khan as his deputy and the real power representing the vizier. Punjab was placed under the command of Adina Beg for an annual tribute of 3 million rupees. The vizier left Sarand and arrived back in Delhi in July 1756. The Sikhs, meanwhile, had been using the relative calm to regroup. They had reconstructed the fort of Ram Rani, and had placed it under the command of Jassa Singh Ramgadiya. During the game of musical chairs that was being played in Lahore, the Sikhs at various times clashed with Khaja Mirza, Pikri Khan, Jamiluddin Khan, and various Mughal commanders. The crafty Adina Beg maintained a relationship of sorts with them, sometimes recruiting them to join in his military enterprises. In April 1755, Adina Beg had recruited more than 50,000 Sikhs who had helped him defeat Qutb Khan Ruhila 
on the banks of the Sutlej near Ropard. The victory had brought great renown to Adina Beg, and he expanded his control beyond the Jalandar Dwab all the way to Sarand, Thanesar, and Mustafabad. After the victory, the Sikhs turned upon Adina Beg and wrested the district of Fatabad from him as their fief. On April 10, 1756, a Sarbat Khalsa was organized at the Akal Takhat in Amritsar. The Sikh chiefs paid tribute to the memory of Nawab Kapoor Singh and appointed Jassa Singh Aluwalia as their religious and political leader to take his place. The Sikhs had already been organized into 11 bands, and this was the time their influence began to rise. The instability in both Delhi and Lahore had created chaos all over the Punjab, and as the Mughal chiefs jockeyed for power, turning to Kandahar one day and Delhi the next, law and order collapsed, and life became impossible for the common people as the security apparatus of the administration had all but been dismantled. The Sikh Jathas, or bands, stepped into this vacuum and started to build the foundation of their future power. In the words of Dr. Hariram Gupta, the Sikhs offered a plan to the villagers individually. The villagers were to place themselves under the protection of the Dal Khalsa on a promise to pay one-fifth of their income twice a year in May and October at the end of each harvest, Ravi and Kharif. The Sikhs, in return, were to afford them full protection against plunder, theft, or molestation of any kind, either by themselves or by their neighbors and government troops. In a word, the safety of their persons and property was to be guaranteed. This system was called Rakhi or Jamadari. The 11 Jathas of the Sikhs were assigned specific territories with a reserve force placed in Amritsar. The bands of Karoda Singh and Deep Singh went to the south bank of the Satlaj. The Fazal Puriyas moved towards Ropar, and the Aluvalias positioned themselves at the confluence of the Satlaj and Bias rivers. Jaising Kanaya and the Ramgariyas went to the fertile area north of Amritsar and the Nakais south of Lahore. The most dangerous territory, the area from the Ravi to the Jhelum, which had a very hostile population, was taken by the Pangis and the Shukarchakyas. The Nishanwalas and the Dallewalas were assigned to the reserve force at Amritsar. The Sikh chiefs started building small forts in the areas that they were responsible for protecting. Ala Singh's clan had not been part of the original 11 bands, but they maintained a strong presence in the Malwa and became known as the Fulkiya. The import was significant. In Dr. Gupta's words, this step secured for the Sikhs a strong economic position for the time being and created for the Sikh chiefs principalities which they were soon to rule over as absolute masters. Thus, this step supplied them with the idea of raising themselves into territorial chieftains. The eleven bands of six and the Fulkians 
were destined to become famous as the missiles of the Punjab. The very term missile, which in Persian equates to status and similarity, embodied the republican nature of the Sikh Panth, in which every band, and by extension every Sikh, was an equal. Their sovereignty was not inherited or owed to an earthly monarch. It was derived directly from their master, Guru Gobind Singh, who had gifted his own temporal power to them. A few more decades of turbulence lay ahead, but beyond them, the first glimmer of real power and glory could be seen. The Story of the Six is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of Night of the Restless Spirits, a collection of short fiction that examines the tumultuous events of 1984 from many different angles. His previous book, The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, tells the story of many colorful characters who populated the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. The Story of the Six is produced by Almost Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Avtar Singh. This episode features a rendition of Raga Shri on guitar by Ritom Sarkar. Tabla accompaniment is by Amit Kavtekar. Season 3 of Story of the Six is sponsored by the Chardi Kala Foundation, the Sawani Family Foundation, and Manpreet Kaur and Ishdeep Singh. I'm co-producer and audio engineer, Erica Wong. Thank you for joining us.